Hi everyone, welcome to Out of the Dust, Sacramento State's student-run public history podcast. My name is Katie Pugh and I'm a public history graduate student. Today I'll be talking with Sacramento State history professor Dr. Mona Siegel about her book Peace on Our Terms, The Global Battle for Women's Rights After the First World War, which came out recently. Although I never had a class with Dr. Siegel, the subject of her book instantly made me want to read it. Although we couldn't meet in person, we had a fascinating Zoom discussion about the surge of women activists from the United States to the Middle East who used the 1919 Paris Peace Conference as leverage for advancing gender equality. Would you like to introduce yourself for the podcast? I will be happy to. So my name is Mona Siegel, and I'm a full-time member of the History Department at Sacramento State University, and I research the history of international feminism and pacifism and internationalism, primarily in the 20th century. And we are here today to talk about your book called uh, Peace on Our Terms, The Global Battle for Women's Rights After the First World War. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) So to get started, how long did it take you to research this book? You know, this book uh, in historian's time went remarkably quickly. I first started researching it almost exactly four years ago. Um, So spring break four years ago in 2016, and it took me approximately three years to complete the research and the writing, and then another year to bring the book to publication. You went to at least like 10 different archives and just looking through the book, that's what it looks like. (laughs) So I conducted research in probably closer to 15 different archives in four different countries. So I did um, a considerable amount of research here in the United States in big archives like at the Library of Congress smaller ones. Um, Howard University has an excellent archive in African-American history. Uh, There's a big archive at the University of Colorado in Boulder that relates to peace activism. And then I also did research in France and in England and in Belgium. Did you have a favorite archive that you went to? Um, A favorite archive that I went to. I, I went to any number of really interesting and amazing archives. Uh, I'll answer the question in two different ways. Um, In terms of just a space to work, uh, I would say that I had two favorites. One is an archive called the John Ryland Archive that's part of the University of Manchester that's in a historic building with a big reading room with big wooden tables. You kind of imagine a reading room would look like a second being uh, titled the Bibliothèque Historique de la Ville de Paris, which is the historical library of the history of Paris, but which also contains an important kind of um, sub archive on women's history and feminist history. And that's in a historic building in the Marais in Paris, kind of a 17th century building with a beautiful painted ceiling and all of that. So. In terms of spaces to work, I liked those two the best. Probably the most exciting archive to work on in for me was also in France. It's a feminist archive that's part of the Université d'Angers. So the city of Angers is kind of near where the Chateau de Loire are, nearing that part of France. And that was exciting to work in because there I used documents 
that had been lost during World War II and had only been recently recovered. And um, I found really important material that had never been found before. Okay, that sounds cool. It was very exciting. And going along the lines with like the French archives, was it hard because were a lot of the um, material in French? So a fair amount of the material, yeah, a fair amount of the material in France and in Belgium, and even for that matter, in some of the other British archives was in French. The, the two primary languages that were used between international feminists in the early 20th century were English and French. And that was true not just of European and American women, that was true of, say, Middle Eastern women, for example, who were limited in the amount of Arabic instruction that they were allowed to get, but who were often schooled by French tutors. So um, a lot of the work that I did was in French. I, uh, I was a French, well, I was a double major as an undergraduate and French language and literature was one of my two majors. So I've worked with the French language and lived with Fran in France a number of times in my life. So I'm, I'm very comfortable researching in that language. Okay, because that was one of my other questions, because I was just like, oh, I wonder how that worked. Right, so um, so documents in French and English I could handle with, with more or less the, almost the same fluency. There were some documents in German, of which I have a small amount of skill, but I still needed to use plenty of dictionaries to get through them. And then I had a very small number of documents um, in either Chinese or Arabic that I wanted to use that I had um, people assist me with the translation. And was that at the archives that you got assistance with the languages? Um, no, I tapped sources here at home. So um, Dr. Marwa Helmi, who teaches at in the history department on a part-time basis, helped me with the Arabic sources. And it's actually a Chinese American friend of mine who's a nurse by day, but who <laughs> was super interested, who's a feminist also, and very, very interested in the Chinese material I uncovered, who um, helped me with uh, a couple of Chinese sources. There's also a Chinese or a fe a feminist, a, a historian of Chinese feminist history uh, who teaches in Australia, but who's befriended me and helped me with this project who also helped with some of the Chinese sources. What made you want to study the time period right after World War I? I, um, I really began my career as a history student and then as a historian focusing on this period. Um, like many you know, uh, students, when I first learned about the two world wars, they struck me as such important turning points not just in terms of military history or even political history, which were lenses through which people very commonly viewed them, but particularly through social and cultural history, all the ways that they changed the power dynamic throughout society. Um, my first book, which had been my dissertation and then became a book, uh, also focused roughly on the same time period between the two world wars, looking at pacifism in France in those periods of time. Um, so I've, I've been kind of knee deep in this period of history for throughout my entire career. This book, as you know, focuses particularly on one year, the year of 1919, right at the end of World War I. And in this case, it was really my sources that led me to this uh, focal point, realizing what an incredibly uh, important watershed this was 
in terms of the history of global feminism. What kind of things did you learn in these sources that led you to want to focus on just that one year? Um, well, I this project really began with, uh, in my mind, began with the material that ultimately ended up in chapter four of the book, which is to say a group of pacifist feminists who came together in Zurich, Switzerland at the end of World War I in order to try and define what they saw as the necessary terms for an enduring peace. And um, the women who were involved in this movement gave rise to a new, um, a new organization called the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which still exists today. So that particular meeting and this particular organization, uh, I've known about ever since I was an undergraduate in history and took, uh, or uh, not an, under, an undergraduate um, and pursuing a historical undergraduate thesis, uh, which focused on this organization. Um, so I knew that there were women who were involved at the end of World War I in trying to, to define what the peace term should be, who were absolutely absent from all the books that my teachers gave me to read about World War I and about the Paris Peace Conference. But I kind of assumed for many, many years now that they were anomaly, an anomaly, right? They, they were the only ones and they ultimately didn't get most of what they wanted, so that's why historians have ignored them. Over the years, as I continued my research into international feminism, I uh, began following a trail, kind of an archival trail before this one, looking at when it was that international feminists first began organizing together and trying to overcome the boundaries that separated the Western world from the non-Western world, or from the imperial powers, from those that were largely subject to imperial subjugation. And in the process of this, I was researching um, some feminist organizing in the 1920s. I was looking at a, group, a small group of Western women who had gone to Asia and were trying to, um, trying to uh, see if there might be ways for women from Europe and Asia to collaborate. And while they were in China, this group of women uh, were helped by a woman by the name of Sumei Chun who was there, she served as their translator while they were in southern China, and she also um, introduced them to very important people like Madame Chiang Kai-shek, the, the wife of the ruler of, of China at the time. And they started referring to Sumei Chang as the first modern woman in China, which I thought was intriguing. Um, how would they know, and was it true, and what did that even mean? And so I was curious about this woman who just, you know, appeared up appeared in a couple of letters and a couple of reports from the time and through a very complicated trail um, ended up discovering that this woman Sumei Chung had written a memoir in fact she wrote a memoir three different times in her life first in French and then in English and when I got my hands on it and started reading her story she started talking about her time as an official delegate to the Paris Peace Conference and my mind was blown I had never, ever heard of this woman before, uh, before I began following this trail. And nobody, no diplomatic historian had ever suggested that there was any woman from any country appointed as a delegate to the Paris Peace Conference. And the story she told, which is in um, chapter five of my book, uh, about what her actions were at that time were extraordinary as well. So then I started thinking, my goodness, now I know that there were pacifist feminists 
who were trying to influence the piece in 1919. And there was a Chinese feminist who had a very central role in these events. Who else was there and what else were they trying to do? And so that's when I started digging through the secondary material and talking to other experts in the field and putting together this more global picture that would become my book. Chapter five was one of my favorite parts of the book because I didn't, because I only know kind of the history of uh, the women's, you know, feminist movement of getting the right to vote. And I didn't realize that there were Chinese women involved and who had gone to the peace talk. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think most of us in the United States are brought up with a very Western-centric vision of what the women's rights movement was and who was involved. And so I think that some of the non-Western personalities and historical characters that I discuss will be some of the most exciting for readers of my book. Yeah, that and the Middle Eastern women came out too, because I I, you don't, like you said, you don't, it's a Western perspective of women's rights. So I didn't think I had no context for that at all. <laughs> yeah. It, well, you know, and I have to say that me too, when I started this project, right, my, my specialty, I don't know if I said it earlier, is French history and European history. So I had to go and learn a lot of other background histories before I could begin to tell this particular story. And the story of the Egyptian women was very much part of that process. There were, I also liked that there were some names I recognized, like Carrie Chapman Cat, and some of those women that you also talk about how they, they met these like international women too. And that was also really interesting to me, like hearing, like reading about these names you recognize meeting other people you had no idea about. Yes, and in the end, there's actually quite a few American women who are featured in my book as well. Um, although they don't tend to be the American women that we read about as much, right? I mean, Carrie Chapman Catt, I, I start my book with Carrie Chapman Catt, um, trying to kind of figure out what women should be doing in terms of international organizing at the end of World War I, because she was the president not only of the major women's suffrage organization here in the United States, but also the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, which was the single biggest international organization. And when World War I was coming to an end, her friends in Europe were madly writing her letters and sending her telegrams saying, get over here. There are very important decisions that are about to be made on a global level, and you need to be here leading us. And Carrie Chapman Catt um, said, no, I won't come because the uh, push for the 19th Amendment for here in the United States was reaching its climax at that moment. And she felt as though her responsibility was to be here organizing here for American women's rights, and that left a void that other women stepped in, both internationally, but also American women, um, uh, working class women, African American women, radical women like Jane Addams, um, who uh, made Paris and made Europe their site of activism in 1919 thought that was interesting because Jane Adams is another name I recognize from like Hull House and it, it was just I didn't know that part of her life that she had gone to Europe to help these other women with their cause. Exactly and that you know Jane Adams won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, a little bit after this period of time and it had something to do with her progressivism and social movement activism in the United States, but really it had much more to do with her international organizing for peace. 
another theme in your book is kind of like changing what how women were seen like women back in 1919 and right after World War One were seen as like a certain way and them coming out to fight for more rights kind of changed how they were seen in public life and I thought that was yeah I think in, in different ways all the women that I discuss confront cultural stereotypes about women and then just assumptions about women's intellectual abilities and their proper social roles in society I mean maybe one of my favorite smaller stories from the book uh, that that builds on that theme uh, comes up in the final chapter on women's labor activism and it focuses on a Japanese uh, labor activist by the name of Tanaka Taka who spoke out uh, uh, in favor of international standards that would protect Japanese women workers from exploitation and when she began she wasn't she was there as an advisor not as a delegate to the international labor organization and when the men for whom she was um, speaking began to realize what she was saying they tried to shut her down and because she was uh, several months pregnant while she was at this meeting they tried to insist that she was out of her right mind because she was in a family way right she, she didn't know what she was saying because she was pregnant and they tried to use that excuse to get her excluded from the discussion altogether. But by that point in time, she had powerful feminists, uh, Western feminists on her side, and she got the Japanese media on her side. And so she kind of won the day in that debate. That was another part I found very interesting about your book was like, you never knew who was going to be on their side. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and that, I mean, these women were constantly aware that they were speaking directly to politicians and diplomats, they were speaking to each other, but they were always speaking to the media and a broader public. And they were always seeking publicity for their ideas because they did not have, or very few of them, I should say, had access to any real pulpit of power. So if they were going to influence how the global population thought, they were going to have to get their ideas in the front pages of newspapers. Kind of the same today, like people still use the media to get their um, whatever they need to get out out there. Absolutely. It's why, you know, the women who participate in the women's marches each year are very concerned with media coverage because um, it's one thing to sit there and talk with, uh, you know, to, to preach to the choir, right, to, to try and build up momentum for one's ideas. But ultimately, you have to convince those who are opposed to or indifferent to your ideas to buy into it if you're going to change organization and policy down the road. How did you narrow down your sources? Did you have a lot of sources you had to deal with? Um, so I, I had kind of a two-step process, one in terms of narrowing the subject matter and then the second in terms of narrowing the, the actual sources. So I made the strategic decision very early on in the process that while there was a whole um, world of feminist organizing going on at exactly this moment that I, that I would not be able to um, include. I decided to focus in specifically on the activists who were pushing for women's rights directly in response to the promises and hopes of the peace conference. 
So for example, the battle for the final um, passage and then ratification of the 19th Amendment in the United States, while on the fringes of my book, is not a central focus. Even though that fight was going on at the same time, it had its own generating moment and was only very tangentially related to um, to the Paris Peace Conference. Similarly, a group that I wish I had had space to talk about more um, that I did not were Indian women who also were building up a, a wider and more, more defined battle for women's rights and for suffrage in particular in India that I mention in passing, but I don't deal with in any great detail in my book. So I narrowed it down to groups and organizations and movements that were directly mobilized by the end of the war and the promise of this, this new world government that was coming into being and international treaties that were being signed. Then in terms of the sources, even having narrowed it down, um, you know, I used all the wonderful new technology that we're allowed to bring into archives, which is mostly to say my cell phone, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but which was loaded with several different database programs. So when I went into archives, I, um, I kind of did blitzkrieg archival work. I, you know, I just took pictures of absolutely everything that might be of use to me and got them all into a database and brought them all home since I didn't have unlimited resources to stay in, in Europe or elsewhere and do this work. Um, and then <clears throat> my process was uh, a lot more mundane, but, um, but super important. I was able to OCR a lot of the documents and use keyword searches and then um, mark my documents with um, tags of important, uh, important themes that came up in them in order to juggle what in the end were really tens of thousands of documents culling down to the most important ones. <laughs> like even narrowing it down sounds crazy. You know, it's a lot, but you know, my, my, I don't know about you, my favorite part of being a historian, um, a research historian is the detective work. I really love tracking the sources down. I love, you know, piecing the picture together. So, the discussion in chapter one about the Inter-Allied Women's Conference in Paris in the winter and spring of 1919, that involved documents that were spread out between Angers and Paris and London and Manchester. So four different archives, literally the letters that women were writing back and forth to each other ended up in different archives, depending on you know, who got them at the end of their lives. And I was piecing that story back together, trying to figure out the back and forth of, okay, this French woman wrote to this British woman, but the British woman checked in with the Belgian woman and, and putting that all together. So to me, that's really fun. Uh, it's the actual writing that's a little bit more painful for me. Yeah, I would agree with that. I like doing the research, uh, but the, getting started on the writing is the hardest part for me. Yeah, it's, there, there's just no easy way to, to go about it, I don't think. You actually visited, did you visit all of the archives, all of the 15 archives? Did you have to take a sabbatical? Um, so yes, I actually visited in person all of these archives. The only, there's a few archives that supplied me with photographs that I didn't, um, that I didn't actually visit in person, but um, the rest I did. So. Um, yes, the majority of my research I conducted during a semester sabbatical. Um, so I had the release time from teaching and 
I also had fortunately a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, which gave me the funding that I needed to go to travel to these places. Some of the American archives I did, I spread out more, you know, I do kind of a, a spring break trip here and a early summer trip there. Um, I was able to, but the, the ones in Europe because for economic reasons, I needed to kind of go in there and, and absorb it all and um, do it all at once. And then I did, I, I should say also, I was incredibly fortunate to receive another uh, National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship just about a year later that allowed me to take more time off of teaching and just concentrate on writing this book. Oh, and that's, wow. that's the only way that I was able to do so this quickly. There's, you know, otherwise it would have been a 10 year project instead of a three or four year one. I also liked a lot of the pictures you included in the book. Uh, I actually liked uh, having, seeing a face that went along with the names of these women. I, I know that when I read books, I like to have those pictures too. And since many of these women um, were not particularly well-known figures uh, or aren't, you know, to a, to a reading audience today, I wanted them to have those images to go with it. Uh, some of the images are just there to kind of show the women in action. Others, I actually, you know, analyze. So there's an image in there, for example, of a kind of a statue that um, Western feminists, or French feminists in particular, gave to Woodrow Wilson when he first came to Europe in 1919, uh, thanking him uh, on the part of all French women for America's part in the war and for his idea of the peace to come. And I look at how it is that French women represented themselves and represented womanhood on this particular statue, suggesting that they were really playing with ideas of femininity and motherhood in order to attract Woodrow Wilson's sympathetic attention. Did you have a least favorite part of doing all your research? A least favorite part? I can tell you that the most difficult part for me um, was in uh, seeking out first an agent and then a publisher. Um, not that it was extraordinarily difficult, although it had its ups and downs, but historians are, and academics in general, are not particularly trained to market themselves well. And, um, and that, so because I wanted to write a book from the very beginning that would be accessible to a general audience and hopefully interesting to a general audience. I did not want to um, publish it in the way a lot of academic scholarship is published, which is to say it, with, with a limited printing, with an academic press that was really just gauging libraries and a small group of scholars. I wanted this to be a book that was priced in a way that ordinary people could potentially afford it and that would be marketed to a general audience. So that meant I decided not to just go to publishers. I went first and got an agent, a literary agent to represent me, which was a scary proposition. It's very hard to get it. It's almost harder to get into an agent than it is to a publisher. And in this case, you know, this, this agent, you know, she, she doesn't even take emails or letters out of the blue. You have to be recommended by somebody she already works with for her to even consider representing you. And so I had to work, you know, people who knew people who knew people in order to get in the door. And then I had to learn how it was to sell a book to, to a press 
to convince them that there was a broad audience out there eager to read it. Uh, I didn't realize publishing was publishing in academia was like that. <laughs> I mean, publishing in academia is always hard. Um, and like I said, with my first book, I, it never occurred to me to get an agent and, I, and it wouldn't have worked anyway. My first book was my dissertation and it was much more specific and had a much more limited audience in mind. But I think historians over the time of my career have become much more sensitive to the idea that if we're going to do all this research, that putting it into some sort of format that it's going to get into the hands of people uh, who will be interested, but who also will benefit from it um, has become much more widespread. And I think there's far more historians now who are writing blogs or trying to get articles in newspapers and who are trying to publish books that will reach a wider audience as well. That's, it's a challenge, um, but it's one that a lot of people are more excited about. Was there anything else that was difficult about the writing process or was it just the publishing piece? Um, I mean, writing is always hard for me. I, I like writing on some level, but, um, but it, you know, there's days that I stare at an empty screen and it's still an empty screen at the end of the day. And that's pretty agonizing. I also, I made the decision again with this book because I wanted it to reach a general audience that as I completed chapters, I wanted to have readers who could give me feedback, not just on whether or not I was getting my facts right, but also on whether or not I was telling the story well. So I had friends who are not academics. So one is a lawyer, one is a novelist, another one <laughs> is a former radio producer. I had them reading chapters and sending me feedback. Um, over the course of it. I had both my parents and my in-laws reading chapters and sending me feedback. And then I had historians who were specialists in the field do the same thing. And so I would get all their advice, but revising was hard because they weren't all necessarily telling me the same thing, right? The, the academic historians are saying, oh, you really need to include this important story or this important fact or, or detail, whereas my um, more general readers were saying, oh, there's way too much detail. You need to get rid of that and just get to the core story. And so finding a middle ground between those two was, was tough. Yeah, I have to kind of have to take a look at as I'm as I'm reading for school as a historian or am I reading for pleasure in my spare time. Right, right. And I, you know, I wanted this to be a book that could potentially be used for both purposes. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's only been out for a short while, but I'm hearing from uh, some early academics who've assigned it as a in a class, and I'm hearing from some just general readers who picked it up for pleasure. And so that makes me very happy to think at this early stage, I'm already getting both of some of those two groups of readers. Uh, mine was a little bit of both. Uh, I thought your book looked interesting, which is why I wanted to interview you. So, <laughs> well, like I said, I'm you know you're you're my perfect audience in a way, and that makes <laughs> me really happy that you, that you wanted to pick it up in the first place. <sighs> How did you come up with the title? Good, it's a great question, and there's actually it's kind of I'm complicated in in some ways. So the title, Peace on Our Terms, The Global Battle for Women's Rights After the First World War, was not the working title that I had through most of the time that I was writing or even while I was pitching it to an agent and to publishers. Um, for a long time, I was working with the title, um, More Than Half of Humanity. 
because the women, particularly in Paris, um, but in other contexts as well, kept asserting that, you know, you can't leave us out because you're leaving out more than half of humanity because after, you know, a war that killed so many men, in many of these countries, women actually outnumbered men. So I, I liked it um, because it was words straight out of their mouths. And I liked it because it evoked the sense of importance they had in their own ideas. Um, but as uh, numerous uh, publishers and my agent constantly told me, it was too abstract. It didn't really talk about what the book was all about. And um, so once Columbia University Press decided to take this on, I had a lunch meeting in Chicago with my editor and we brainstormed together. And, you know, I said to her essentially that the thing that was most important, well, the, the two things that were most important to me were one, to get the core ideas of what they were fighting for into the title, which is to say peace and women's rights. But above and beyond that, I wanted a title that captured a sense of defiance and activism. You know, women are too often, at least in this time period in history, portrayed as polite and passive. Um, and these were women who were anything but. They were breaking all kinds of customs. They were doing things that their husbands or fathers didn't necessarily approve of. And they were, they were issuing demands, essentially. And so um, in talking through this together, peace on our terms, we thought captured that sense of defiance. And then um, putting in the subtitle that the core of this battle was a global battle for women's rights, captured the rest of what I wanted to in the title. Oh, I like the title, so. Oh, good, good, I'm glad. Do you wanna hear the story behind the pictures on the cover as well? Is that interesting to you? Yeah, that would be great. So there, there's two pictures on the cover of my book um, of two different groups of women. The group at the bottom are a collection of women who went to Zurich, Switzerland for that pacifist feminist Congress that Jane Addams was the chairwoman of in 1919. And um, at the top of the page, it's a group of Egyptian women who are out on the streets in Cairo participating in the Egyptian revolution in 1919. So these two photos um, relate to two different chapters in my book. I liked them uh, in part because most of the photos from this time period show people indoors standing very stiffly and posing for pictures, which was just customary when film was expensive and, and um, action photography, you know, not even yet a thing really. Uh, these show women outdoors on the streets engaged in actual activist activity. I liked the fact I wanted a cover that showed the global diversity of women participating in the movement. So I did not want just Western suffragists or just um, labor activists on the cover. I wanted at least something of a representation that captured the global sense of this movement. And then finally, the picture on the bottom of the women in Zurich, it's probably nobody is noticing but me. But while there are five women at the center of the frame out on the streets, in the background, you can see kind of the silhouette of a man in a hat looking at them, kind of seeming to almost say, you know, what are these women up to? And so I liked that kind of hint of a narrative there about women stepping in and essentially saying to men, if you want a world that's going to be safe and secure going forward, you're going to have to accept us as equal partners. 
I I like the diversity in the book because only ever heard of like upper class white lady fighting for her rights. It was interesting. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad. Uh, so before I let you go, is there anything else you would like to add? I guess I would say that in terms of in terms of where I see this book intervening in the historiography of um, international feminism, but also feminism here in the United States. I am trying to make a strong plea for the idea that women's rights activism has been global for a much longer time than we tend to think. And that while I only use the term uh, briefly towards the end of my book, that it's also been intersectional for an equally long time as well. And by that, I mean to say not just that there were a diverse group of women from Egypt and from China or from um, working class backgrounds or civil rights backgrounds, but that the ways that women experienced oppression in their lives came at an intersection of a lot of different parts of their identity. And so the African-American activists who I feature in my book, for example, Mary Church Terrell and Ida Gibbs Hunt are, um, are responding to the fact both of racial oppression and segregation, which they experience constantly in Jim Crow America, but also of sexism within the budding civil rights movement. And so that they were constantly battling a double oppression that came from being black women in a white and patriarchal world. And so the global nature of the women's rights movement the intersectional nature of that movement and the century old history of that movement are all themes that I hope people walk away from when they've read my book. Thank you. And thank you for talking to me. And I hope you stay sane during this. Sane, sane, safe and healthy, right? Those are the themes. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for your interest in the book. Thank you for listening to this episode of Out of the Dust. I hope everyone enjoyed learning more about women coming together to fight for equality across the globe after World War I and upending traditional ideas about womanhood. Thank you again to Dr. Siegel. Be sure to tune in next week when Shelby talks with Sacramento State history professor Dr. Brendan Lindsay about his book Murder State. Murder State discusses the genocide of Native Americans in California, a subject that I know nothing about. I found Shelby and Dr. Lindsay's discussion fascinating, and hopefully you will too. And please remember to subscribe to Out of the Dust so you don't so you don't won't miss an episode. Mm -hmm.